Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Previously on The Score, Behind the Headlines. When I heard the how he died, and then goes, why would anybody pull off Cyril? I go, then you don't know him. That would be that would not be an unusual situation for him to do, period. James Jordan's red Lexus 400 was found in a wooded area in Fayetteville on August 5th. Welcome to The Score Behind the Headlines, Episode 2, What's Going On in Robeson County? Behind the Headlines is an investigative podcast from 670 The Score, In season one, we're examining the 1993 murder of James Jordan. I'm Julie DeCaro. Our executive producer is Tony Gill. Tonight, a special edition of our program examines Robeson County, a place where poverty, distrust, and violence have become a public issue. One word of caution, this program is about violence and a murder. Before you can even begin to untangle what happened to James Jordan on July 23, 1993, you have to understand a lot about where it happened. Robeson County, North Carolina, is situated in the southern part of the state, between Fayetteville and Wilmington, about 20 miles from the South Carolina border. According to the 2010 census, it was the poorest county in all of North Carolina. Robeson County is one of the poorest counties in North Carolina. In many ways, Robinson County is like what we would regard as a third world country or uh, county. More recently, the North Carolina Justice Budget and Tax Center economic snapshot of Robeson County found that 57.5% of its residents are considered low income, with 33% of the population living below the poverty line. The child poverty rate of 38% is well above the state average of 21.7%, According to the county paper, The Robesonian, poverty in the county has been rising steadily for the last 17 years, and it's one of 353 counties designated persistently poor under USDA guidelines. And yet, Robeson County is one of the most diverse counties in America. Since 2008, it's been identified as a majority-minority county, with Native Americans, African Americans, and Latinos making up 68% of the population. We have a high percentage of ethnic minority people. In fact, the majority of the county is ethnic minority. In days where two races have trouble getting along, there are three races in Robeson County. Whites, blacks, and Indians, all vying for jobs, education, and economic opportunity. Back in 1993 and 1994, the crime rate in Robeson was 154% higher than that of similar-sized counties in North Carolina. But to truly know about Robeson County, you have to know about the history of the sheriff's office. Here's reporter Scott Rabb, who covered the case extensively and wrote about it for GQ magazine. I think the largest single uh, uh, demographic there in terms of ethnicity or race are Native Americans. I mean, mostly Lumbee, which is state-recognized tribe, not federal. And it's really, I think, about 40 percent 
of Robeson County is so Native American. And about, I think, 30 percent, slightly more than that, is African American. I'm not sure what it was then, but it was roughly one third, one third, one third African American, white and Native American. And really kind of segregated. Lumberton, the, the county seat, the big town, was, was the white town. And Pembroke, uh, which is home to a state university, was an originally an Indian school. Uh, is is uh, Native American, and then the African Americans. African Americans were scattered more throughout the county. It was really a strange place. Old time county sheriff who knew where all the bodies were buried. So even absent the kind of the kind of I guess bizarre uh, murder uh, that that you're podcasting about, it couldn't have taken place in a more in a more unusual American place. Here's executive producer Tony Gill. So let's go back to Robeson County, North Carolina, before James Jordan was murdered. It's 1987. Robeson County is a rural and sleepy part of North Carolina. There's a very powerful sheriff there who basically rules the roost. His name, Hubert Stone. You might as well get familiar with that name, Hubert Stone because he's going to come up a lot as we work our way through the murder of James Jordan. So I've been down there, not through this, but just through, like, life stuff. I've passed through that area a, co- uh, a good amount of times, actually. Um, and always was kind of like, oh, this is a weird part of America. <laughs> but then, you know, didn't link the two uh, until I started reporting on this, uh, this case. The Washington Post's Kyle Swinson has been through the area. Swinson says that at the time of the murder of James Jordan, there was a lot of racial tension in the area. Scroll back a little bit and really, like you said, hold over racial tensions. I mean, especially with this case, you have one defendant who's African-American, Daniel Green, and then Larry uh, DeMary, uh, who is uh, Native American. Uh, and I, I think there's actually a sizable Native American population in that area that kind of straddles the two Carolinas. Um, who have been subject to a lot of, you know, discrimination and, and prejudice for decades. When you've got a fragmented county this way, uh, everybody's pulling against everybody else. They never pull together for the common good of the county. A lot of jealousies of what this race or this locality gets, we don't get. You know, these small towns are very much a throwback in that the sheriff is really, you know, the boss of the area. He's basically the most powerful political official in these regions. And everyone knows the sheriff and, and everyone uh, kind of toes the line around the sheriff. And this particular sheriff, so it was Hubert Stone at the time, and he was uh, the Robeson County Sheriff. The county prosecutor back then was Joe Freeman Britt, a man who had been named, quote, world's deadliest prosecutor by the Guinness Book of World Records for sending 47 defendants to death row. In the nearly 30 years before Britt took office, not a single person in Robeson County had been sentenced to death. But only two of the 47 people Britt had tried to sentence to death were actually executed by the state. That's because so many of the cases were overturned on appeal. In Britt's 2016 obituary in the Washington Post, the paper reported that a 1983 study had found that Britt's near-total control of the court system led to a widespread 
and serious denial of the rights of poor defendants. Even Britt's distant cousin, Johnson Britt, a future DA who would wind up prosecuting the James Jordan murder case, declined to defend his relative, calling him, quote, a bully. In 1988, after 14 years as a prosecutor, Joe Freeman Britt decided to run for Superior Court judge. His only opponent was Julian Pierce, a Lumbee Indian and civil rights lawyer with a resume that boasted a degree from Georgetown and time working for the SEC. Julian Pierce was a leader in the Lumbee community and ran a legal aid office, and he was thought to have a good shot at winning the judgeship. But the greatest hope hung on Indian attorney Julian Pierce, a candidate for Superior Court judge. Those same people that worked on the merger issue were behind Julian and they saw a new new day for Robinson County to have not only an Indian judge, but a fair judge, a judge that across the board was going to go in and the corruption was going to end. And he was a real threat. But just six weeks before the election, Pierce was killed, shot three times with a shotgun in his home. The murder was determined by the Robeson County Sheriff's Office to be the result of a family dispute. And Pierce's fiance's daughter's ex-boyfriend, a Lumbee named Johnny Goins, was identified by law enforcement as the killer. But before Goins could be arrested, he was found shot to death in a closet in his father's home. Sheriff Hubert Stone deemed the death a suicide. Britt wound up losing the primary election to his deceased opponent by 2,000 votes, which Britt attributed to a sympathy vote. According to Scott Rabb's terrific 1994 article in GQ, which featured prominently in the research for this week's episode, more than a few people in the local community believed Julian Pierce had been assassinated because he'd learned that local law enforcement was involved in drug trafficking. Many friends and relatives of Pierce and Goins accepted the official version of the deaths at first, but as the shock wore off, suspicions took its place, and talk of a law enforcement cover-up began. We'll get back to that later because it's important. Either way, Sheriff Hubert Stone deemed the case solved. Julia Pierce, Julian Pierce's daughter, has been trying to get police to reopen the investigation into her father's murder for the last 30 years, and she has good reason. Plenty of questions remain unanswered in the case. For example, the medical examiner who handled Johnny Gone's body said he left a suicide note confessing to murdering Julian Pierce, but no note was ever found. And there are conflicting reports about how exactly Goins committed suicide by the State Bureau of Investigation, the SBI, and the doctor who performed the autopsy. It seems no one can agree on exactly how Goins held the gun he purportedly used to kill himself or even exactly where he shot himself. So far, the State Bureau of Investigation has denied Julia Pierce's request to take another look at her father's murder case. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. But the Julian Pierce case isn't the only odd story coming out of Robeson County. Back in 1988, two Native Americans of the Tuscarora Nation, Eddie Hatcher and Timothy Jacobs, 
seized the county newspaper, the Robesonian, armed with two shotguns and held everyone there captive for 10 hours. So what did the two men want? Well, it turned out all they wanted was help. WRAL-TV News in Raleigh, North Carolina, had Eddie Hatcher with him live as he made his demands to the governor as hostages were in the background. WRAL has not given us permission to use the sound, but the link to the video will be made available in the episode notes. Hatcher and Jacobs had amassed a significant amount of evidence that law enforcement in Robeson County was heavily involved in drug trafficking, and they believed they had proof in the form of names of sheriff deputies involved in dealing, maps of drop-off points, and details of transactions. Because of what they believed they knew, Hatcher and Jacobs thought their own lives were in danger, and they had already been to the FBI and DEA without success. The men listed 18 murders of racial minorities in Robeson County that they said were related to drug dealing by law enforcement officers, including a one-small-time drug dealer who had been shot to death by deputy Kevin Stone. Remember that name? Stone? That's Sheriff Hubert Stone's son. It took a coroner's jury only six minutes to deem the death was justifiable. So Hatcher and Jacobs were asking for the North Carolina governor to investigate corrupt law enforcement in Robeson County. And most of all, they wanted not to be turned over to the Robeson County Sheriff, Hubert Stone. The governor agreed to their terms, and the two men surrendered. Later, a federal jury found Hatcher and Jacobs not guilty of hostage-taking and firearm violations, but the state of North Carolina charged them with 14 counts of kidnapping. Eddie Hatcher was sentenced to 14 years in prison and died there in 2009. Jacobs served 14 months of a six-year sentence. But it turns out, Hatcher and Jacobs were right. Let's jump ahead to the early 2000s, well after the murder of James Jordan and the 1996 conviction of Daniel Green and Larry Demery. Here we need to pause for a minute and talk about a state and federal corruption probe into law enforcement in Robeson County named Operation Tarnished Badge. But as the years went by and all the drugs and the stuff come in, it got terrible. I wanted to leave it. And people would say, well, the law ain't doing nothing about it. They ain't in on it. They ain't going to help you. I just lost all my respect for them. From a, a position of not having any supervision and basically having carte blanche authority to do whatever they wanted to do, they went wild. Clearly violated people's rights, hurt people, stole from people. It really, it literally went from the top down. Here's reporter Cal Swinson again. So in the early 2000s then, the Robinson County Sheriff's Office um, basically gets caught up in this very large federal corruption probe, which they called Operation Tarnish Badge. And at least 22 officers were charged with crimes, everything going from perjury uh, all the way up to drug trafficking. And Sheriff Stone was never named in the federal probe, although all this went on under his watch. Uh, and he was never officially implicated in any type of corruption. And actually, he passed away in 2008. That's right. After decades of whispers and rumors about drug dealing and other nefarious activity by Robeson County Sheriff's deputies, it turns out there was actually something to it. It all started back in 2002 when District Attorney Johnson Britt, he's a distant cousin of Joe Freeman Britt, the guy who loved the death penalty, 
and was told by an informant that sheriff deputies had given him a handgun during a home invasion they had disguised as a sting operation. When the information report and the gun involved in the crime went missing and later turned up in a deputy's locker, Johnson Britt asked the State Bureau of Investigation to investigate. And that led to the largest investigation of police corruption in North Carolina history. When an officer or an investigator comes to me and essentially tells me that a police department or a sheriff's office is so rife with corruption that there is no meaningful way that the state government can take care of that matter, then we sit up and take notice. And there's no question but that that was the case in, in this situation, that you, in, in the end, have had more than 20 officers have to make the trip into federal court, not as investigators, but as defendants. There's very clearly a situation that the state government can't address adequately because of the, the rampant nature of it in the department. By the time Operation Tarnished Badge had concluded, 22 law enforcement officers, including a former Robeson County Sheriff named Glenn Maynor, had been charged with everything from kidnapping to armed robbery to drug trafficking to money laundering. All 22 officers pleaded guilty and received sentences ranging from a few months to 34 years in prison. It turned out the Robeson County Sheriff's Office was just as dirty as some people thought. And the allegations went all the way back to 1995 when Robeson County was building their case against Daniel Green and Larry Demery, who were convicted of the murder of James Jordan. Their case wouldn't go to trial until 1996. As you heard Kyle Swenson point out, Sheriff Hubert Stone wasn't among those indicted in Operation Tarnished Badge. He left office in 1994, just one year after James Jordan's murder. But even though Operation Tarnished Badge only indicted officers for crimes going back to 1995, it's not like there were never any rumors about Sheriff Stone. In his article for GQ, Scott Rabb writes that in 1987, U.S. Assistant Attorney General William Webb headed up a drug trafficking probe into Robeson County and marveled at the purity of the cocaine moving through the area. That probe indicted one deputy, but he testified under oath that one Robeson County drug dealer cut Sheriff Hubert Stone $300 in protection money for every ounce of cocaine he sold. It's into this background of drug trafficking, police corruption, and violence in Robeson County that the murder of James Jordan takes place. And the guy in charge of leading the investigation into his murder? Sheriff Hubert Stone. Here's Scott Rabb again. I used to go down there with a 12-gauge shotgun and a Neapolitan Mastiff. That's Because that, people kept warning me to be careful. <laughs> and because... So many drugs flow, or at least back then, all you heard about was the the, the trailers, the manufactured, the, the mobile homes that would come up Interstate 95 from Florida, packed, you know, the, the kind you see, the wide load with the, the vehicle, you know, escorting them on the interstate. And that, that was a huge part. And Robinson County was a huge stopping point in, in the cocaine trade back then. Scott actually got a chance to interview Sheriff Hubert Stone back in the day. And it turns out Sheriff Stone wasn't all that graceful when it comes to racial politics. Like you got to understand the context. But yeah, he out and out basically said, if you see an Indian and a black kid walking down the street together, you got crime. That was basic. I don't think I'm, I I mean, it's not a direct quote, but that was pretty much verbatim, the kind of stuff. Sheriff, and should he have been, he had been sheriff there a long time. Scott spent a lot of time talking to the local community about the James Jordan murder, particularly the Native American community. I don't remember talking to anyone who bought that story, and I don't just mean uh, 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 among the Pembroke 
Lumbee or Tuscarora Indians. I'm talking about anyone I talk to, including prosecutors in Raleigh. You know, people who say, well, it could have gone down that way. It is possible, but that really doesn't fit very well with where he pulled off, if that's where he pulled off, the history of the county, the history of law enforcement in the county, and James Jordan, who was a native, uh, kind of a, uh, understood the terrain really well between Wilmington and Charlotte, where he was driving en route uh, uh, to, to his fate. Uh, that People strongly felt that that the boys were set up, that there was more to the story than was ever going to come out in court. And I feel a little bit, not, not just regret, but a little bit ashamed to say, you know, I could have spent more years. I could have dug deeper, but I also you know, had a full-time job on the side. But by and large, the, the, the folks I talked to didn't buy the story at all. The last thing you need to know about Robeson, North Carolina, before we move on to the evidence in the James Jordan murder, is the drugs. The intersection of US-74 and 995 where James Jordan is said to have pulled off for a nap, is almost exactly halfway between Miami and Boston. Why is that significant, you ask? Back then, that exit was a major exchange point for drugs, especially cocaine. Now, we're not suggesting that James Jordan had any involvement whatsoever in drug trafficking, only that if you believe the prosecution's version of events, Jordan, a man very familiar with the lay of the land in Robeson County, just will happen to pick the very worst spot in the world to take a nap. That whole 2,000 miles of Interstate 95, Robinson was right smack in the middle. That intersection was a place where people would hang, you know, fabric or shoes over the wires, you know, as a signifier, you know, let people know, uh, you know, it was a way for drug dealers to communicate, was, was hanging stuff on wires. At the, it was all so weird. It has never sat well with me because... It's so murky. It's so strange. There's so much, I mean, the mythology of that county, not just the drug dealing. It's murky, all right. It was the place where I sat and, and, and hung out, not because I was looking for trouble, but because I was reporting a story. So partly what I, what I had heard from, from Sheriff Stone is that it wasn't unusual for people to pull off the road. I mean, it's an odd, you know, the 74 is the state route, and it's basically a two-lane, and it's not, by any of my standards, you know, a real freeway or turnpike, but but it's a state road, and Interstate 95 is Interstate 95. There are cheap, you know, hotels and and, places that I stayed when I was down there, well-lit parking lots, all that stuff where James Jordan supposedly, allegedly pulled off was a very, very sheltered kind of dark spot uh, on 74, not far from 95. So he, he didn't exactly, I mean, he chose, again, we're going by uh, what was testified to uh, in court, uh, that he just chose to take a nap there. That's where he chose to pull his $46,000 red, red Lexus with gold trim off to the side of the road and take a nap. And I'm not trying to You know, to suggest that even looking back, if I thought, because I've talked to Daniel Green's lawyers over the years, it's just unclear to me, uh, outside of what what happened in court, what the the, the possibilities are endless, is what I'm saying. And I wasn't enough of a reporter at that point in time, or I I didn't want to spend more years down there to really to really try and find whatever version of the truth suited me. Then you have this whole issue of the the law enforcement agency, the sheriff's office that's actually investigating this case, and like very suspicious connections that are there between people who might be involved in, in the highest echelon of the sheriff's department. 
One of those suspicious connections that Kyle Swanson is talking about is about a man named Hubert Larry Deese. He's going to be really important in the next episode when we talk about the trial of Daniel Green and Larry Demery. But for now, what you need to know is that it was an open secret in Robeson County that Hubert Larry Deese was the illegitimate son of, get this, Sheriff Hubert Stone. And Deese was also good friends with several high-ranking law enforcement officers within the Sheriff's Department. If you think back to episode one, you'll recall that one of the ways Robeson County Sheriff's Department tracked down Daniel Green and Larry Demery was by examining phone calls from James Jordan's Lexus. And about seven hours after police believed Jordan was murdered, one of those calls went to Hubert Larry Deese. Whether the police failed to question Deese about his potential involvement in the case or whether his interview with police was simply not turned over to Daniel Green's defense team is unclear. Either way, it appears that the police never really seriously investigated Deese, and more than one defense attorney has insisted that's because of Deese's special relationship to the Roberson County Sheriff's Office, i.e. Sheriff Hubert Stone. But what's important is that Green's defense was never allowed to introduce evidence about that phone call to Hubert Larry Deese, who worked with Larry Demery, and who would later be convicted of drug trafficking himself in Robeson County at trial. Next time on The Score Behind the Headlines. Angus was way over his head. I know what you I love. Uh, public defenders are heroes to me and to my wife, who's a, a legal journalist. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I, I mean, I, I, Angus was a very passive, passive attorney. There were jurors who voted to convict uh, people that I spoke with who served on the jury, who, who lived there, who grew up there, who felt it was a just verdict uh, and all that. The score behind the headlines is written and researched by Julie DeCaro and is produced by me, Tony Gill. New episodes are posted Monday of each week on Radio.com and wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Julie DeCaro, at TonyGill670, and at 670thescore. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.